I'm going to call him Audible. Pastor Leo, come up here, would you please? And I'm going to ask Pastor Leo to pray for you. I didn't tell him this ahead of time, but he's a seasoned professional, so I know he won't have a problem. His birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday, Pastor Leo. I'm going to ask him to pray for you and for me and for us that we would be not just people that, you know, just assemble in a church, but really a church family that loves one another. You've done this. Oh, yeah, they told us in (laughs) seminary, always be ready to preach, pray, or die. So that's it. All right. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being a family of God for these little kids, for being the atmosphere and the fellowship in which they will grow up, for being the witnesses that surround them the voices that speak into their hearts and their lives, the examples that show them what faith looks like. I pray for Pastor Ken as he leads us wisely in this effort, that we might walk with Christ in such a way that the reality of the gospel is evident because Christ lives in us and through us. We ask you now your blessing upon Pastor Ken as he preaches and on us as we listen to the words that come to us through him from you. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and energize our faithful, responsive obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You be seated. Before the Lord uh, privileged us to to move here to our little country home and and to the city of Jackson and to Bethel, our assignment was in the place called the Down River. We had a home uh, near the Detroit River. And then on the way to the church, about halfway to the church, was a little restaurant which had a really pretentious name. It was called the Parthenon. It was a Greek Coney Island, so they called it the Parthenon. Every once in a while, I would stop at the Parthenon on, in the morning, and I would get you know a double order of hash browns or something to eat. I liked it especially because... It had an east-facing plate glass window, huge plate glass window that ran the length of the restaurant all the way to the ceiling, glass-facing east. Because in the Down River, there was little nature to enjoy, and so I enjoyed sitting in that window at least for a few minutes in the morning, and I enjoyed having the full sun shine on me, especially in the wintertime. So I'd go there and get a cup of coffee and read my Bible, and eat a little bit of breakfast that there was a waitress there she was a good lady i'm sure she was very attentive um she was of strong opinion she was interesting and one of the things that she was determined to do was to close the shades on the window and so she would come back as soon as you got set down and she would say oh my we can't have this and then she would just lower the shades all the way down the side of the restaurant and i would just it would just drive me crazy. It's like, and she's coming close, closing off the only decent thing about the entire restaurant, closing the window. And when she would get to me, then I would kind of sheepishly say, I don't need you to close the window. And she would look at me like I had a disease. And she would say, are you sure? And I would say something like, yeah, I'm all grown up. I'm 59 years old. And I know if I, I wouldn't say that, but I would think that in my brain. I was really nice to her. I tried to be warm and loving to her, but she was one of these kind of people that was kind of wired negative, and she was sort of crabby. I uh, talked to her a little bit about her family, tried to witness to her and stuff. She said she had grandkids, and when they were talking about her grandkids, 
And she says, man, I don't know about those kids. I mean, I love them, but I just don't know about them. They come over and they got their heads buried in their cell phone the entire time they're over at my house. And uh, then she would just kind of go on about that. They don't talk to me. Look at their cell phone. I would think, why would they not talk to a person so lovely and interesting? And she said, man, they got their heads buried in their cell phones. And one day she said, yeah, I told them, I said, listen, when you come over to my house, you leave your cell phone behind. You don't even bring it in this house. And I, I'd kind of had it with her, you know. And so I just looked up and I smiled and I said to her, you know what's going to happen, right? She goes, what? I go, they're not going to come over anymore. You're all quiet about that. Okay, you want to vote on that? How many of you would rather have a cell phone than a grandchild? How many of you have a grandchild with a cell phone? And you want grandchildren without cell phones? Yeah, yeah, I know about that. So if you're not careful, here's what you can do. You can grow up to be kind of a crabby, grouchy, cynical, negative, old Christian person. It's very real possibility. And one of the reasons why that is, is this is, a, this is not a message about cell phones. This is a message about the next generation, and if we believe in them, and if we believe in what God can do for them, and if we believe in what God can do in them. That's what this message is about. And it's about not, be, it is, if you're a young person, it's to encourage you, and if you're not a young person, it's to get you to think a little bit about what is it that you really believe about the next generation? What is it that you really feel about the next generation? Here's a couple of options. Some people say, everything about the next generation is wrong everything in our world is wrong and everything is wrong it's kind of a defeat narrative and listen you get this at churches a lot sometimes it's tied with the eschatology with the things to come you know things are going to get bad and worse and there's going to be apostasy and everybody's going to fall away and um, and, and they tie it to like a, a view of the bible it's, it's not quite right the defeat narrative the the the, uh, the decline narrative if you will everything is wrong is not quite right and there are other people that they say their their narrative about the way they look at life and the way they look at the the generations is like nothing's wrong everything's fine and everything isn't fine i mean you can just look around you can tell everything isn't fine so we have these two narratives that people tend to adopt when they think about future generations and that is everything is wrong and nothing is wrong Here's a narrative that, there's a narrative in the Bible that corrects that. It takes into account the fact that there are serious things wrong, and it takes into account the fact that there are amazing possibilities that the Bible describes for every single generation on earth. The question that we kind of ought to be asking is not, what do I think or what do they think, but what does God say about this? And for this, I want you to look back in your Bibles at Psalm 127, and I want you to just kind of look at God's opinion about children or think about God's view of children. And this would be really great today because we're talking about the ministry there of the Youth Haven ministry, which has been so dear to the life of the Bethel Church for so many years, and we hope for many years to come. And we're thinking about the little ones that will receive the Operation Christmas Child boxes, and we're thinking about our own dear loved ones, some of whom are walking with the Lord, some of whom are not walking with the Lord, some of whom are trying to walk with the Lord, and they're struggling. And this is all very important to us, right? And so one of the things that we want to do to keep from becoming cynical and negative and, and, and kind of ugly and, and, and really unable to influence them for God, let's first look at what is God, how does God look at them? How does God see them? And I want you to see this because it's very beautiful. 
obviously Psalm 127, it gives us, you know, three really clear things, three pictures of how God looks at children, and maybe it would be a good idea for us to look at children the way God looks at children, and I'm really not sure that we always do. If you look at Psalm 127, one of the first things you're going to notice is that building a home and watching over a family is really hard work. It's really hard work. It's difficult. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It's like building a house. It's hard work. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's like keeping watch over a city against its dangerous enemies. And raising kids and influencing young people is a lot like that. It's a, like the labor of building a house, an investment in the, in the time and the effort, and, and it's a like a, the vigilance of a watchman over a city. And, and, and the scriptures say it's also vain to do that without the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, those who watch over the city are wasting their time. They're rising up early. They're going to bed late. And it's emptiness. Without the Lord, it's, there's an emptiness to it. But with the Lord, the scriptures say, Behold children, verse 3, our heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Notice three things, quick. Number one, children are heritage. They're like a valuable inheritance. Matter of fact, Peter repeats this in the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3, and verse 7, when he's talking about having children, and he says to, that a couple are, when they have children, are heirs together, heirs together of the grace of life. To have a child is to have an inheritance from the Lord. Is to have, you know, an inheritance would obviously be something that a person in their right mind would cherish, would value. The Bible says a child is like an inheritance not from a wealthy aunt or from your dad or mom, but from God. It's like God giving you a heritage. And the, the scriptures also say here that children are a reward. And the, and the natural question would be, what are they a reward for? And the, and the Hebrew word means like wa- the payment of wages. So it's hard work to bear children. I've seen it done. It's hard work to raise children. I've helped do that. It's hard work to influence children for God. It's just hard work. It takes lots of investment. And you could easily say, is there ever going to be a reward for this? And, the, and God says, yes. In God's opinion, children are a heritage from the Lord, and they are a worthwhile reward for the labor that it takes to raise them for the Lord. But without the Lord, remember this, this psalm says, it's vain or it's empty or shallow. It's hard and tiresome and... And, uh, and empty without the Lord. The Bible also says not only that children are inherited from the Lord, like an inheritance from the Lord, not only are they a reward for the labor that it takes to raise them for the Lord, but it says that it, 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 it says they're a resource, if you will. Um, you see that in verse, verse 5. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And so in this case, the children are... The analogy is like ammunition, you know. It's like you want plenty of it when you need it. Um, we're at war. You want to take the analogy too far. It's just poetry. But we are at war. 
And we want to send our children out as an influence for God in this conflict, this kind of cosmic conflict. And children are a resource in that. And what's interesting, too, is you could, you could add to that, they're, they're rejoicing to a godly person. I, I used to work, when I was starting a church, I had a job in insurance claims, and the girl that sat next to me <coughs> in the booth next to me in the call center where we worked was, was a young girl named Ragna. I'll never forget that. I had a notebook that I would bring to work with me every morning. I would fight the traffic. I would get downtown in Columbus. I would open up my notebook. I would log on my phone, and I would go to work. But on the first page of my notebook was a picture that I had taken one day on a family trip. We stopped out in the country at a place called the White Oak Inn, and we had a picture taken of our family, and I loved it. And it was the big picture that was on the front page of my notebook. So whenever I would log on my phone and I would go to work, I would look down at my family, and I would think about them. That's why I was there. Ragna said to me one morning, Ken, you are such a happy guy. What makes you so happy? And I said, the first thing, I didn't want to just bomb her with the gospel right away. I kind of wanted to ease into that. I said, well, this right here, and I pointed at my book. I said, I have a big family, and the Bible says, if you have your quiver full of children, blessed, you're happy, and that's true with me. I remember that day that she looked at me thoughtfully, and she said, I don't have any children how can I be happy? I said, oh my goodness, you know, I'll talk to you about that sometime. We'll log off the phone and we'll talk. I'll log off the phone and we'll talk about the gospel for a while. But backing up, this is true. One of the things the Bible says is a source of genuine happiness is the children of people who are following the Lord. They're blessed. There's a blessed, blessed is the man who has a quiver full of them. If I'm, if you came to me to perform your wedding, one of the things I would say to you is we should meet for counsel first. And where for six weeks we would meet, and during that time, I would say to you in all seriousness, you ought to have many babies as the Lord lets you have. You really should welcome children in your family. Every single people always snicker about that. You're not. You're being real quiet today. But they always kind of laugh, like, are you serious? And I'm like, you want to see my family pictures? Um, why is that? It's because what the Bible says is true. Not everybody can have a large family. Not everybody can have a baby even one, but Christian people who understand their Bible understand that the Bible says that children are a heritage from the Lord, like an inheritance from the Lord. Children are like a reward from God. Children are like a source of rejoicing. Children are like a resource in the world. According to God, children are to be valued. Children are to be cherished. Children are to be welcomed. Christian people should want a family. When I was a boy in the providence of God, uh, a, a television program came on, and it was called The Waltons. It was on Thursday night. You remember that, old-timers? Uh, Thursday night, uh, every Thursday night, and back then you couldn't, like, watch a TV program when you wanted to. You had to watch it whenever they showed it, back in the old days. Um, we, we would watch, the, we would gather as a family and here was this guy, the key person was a writer. He would sit up in his dormer in his bedroom window in a little valley near Walton's Mountain, and the last thing that would happen was John Boy would be writing, and then the light would go out and everybody would say goodnight. Remember that? I'm sure that God was embedding in my heart a desire to have a family. We actually ended up having the same size family as the Waltons. Did you know that? And, and I write a little bit too. Um, 
What's interesting is about that time of uh, my life, I was in high school, and I was reading a book by John R. Rice uh, on the home. This goes way back in my family. My grandparents, Shipley, when they got saved, they wanted to do their family right. They had been doing their family all wrong, and then when they met the Lord, they wanted to do their family right. This happens to a lot of people. They realize, especially when kids are coming along, we need to do this right. We need to get God's help, right? So that's what they did, and they got this book by this old Baptist evangelist, John R. Rice. It's really a very good book on the home. And in the book on the home by John R. Rice were these beautiful chapters about the blessing of children. I can still remember where I was sitting in high school in my study hall when I read those chapters in that little green book and thought, God, what a beautiful thing it would be to be able to welcome, you know, children into my life. God in his kindness and in his mercy has allowed us to experience that. Probably you, many of you, not all of you, have gotten to experience that. I want to say right now, you know, not everybody can have children. There's circumstances that make that impossible. Not everybody has said, you know, a large family, God has a different, you know, uh, uh, leading for everybody, and that's between you and the Lord. But in the world that we live in today, you know, there are people that they, they can't have children at all, and yet there are children whose parents have fallen into difficulty, they've fallen into self-destructive habits they've been unable to parent like they should there's so many children in the world today that need people that are responsible that are loving that cherish them that see them as a gift from god so christians should be people who see children as a gift from god as a heritage from god now this should inform our optimism or pessimism about the future if you think about it god keeps giving children it is his vote that the world should go on Years ago, there was, a, there was a family, there was a young couple, and it was in the 60s, a turbulent 60s. There was the sexual revolution. There was all kinds of uh, racial tensions and sadness. They lived in a really terrible time. And there was a young couple, and they were school teachers in Indiana. They were, they were trying to do a bit of singing. He did a little bit. They both wrote songs and poems, and they were school teachers. You may have heard of them, Bill and Gloria Gaither. They ended up doing pretty well with that, with that singing thing. But, but in the 60s, and when they were a young couple, they thought, why would we bring a child into this terrible, troubled world? There's war, and there's hatred, and there's violence, and it's just worse than it's ever been. So why would we bring a child into this world? And about that time, as they were thinking, and as they were praying about that, and they found out they were, that she was pregnant, and they were a little worried about that, and they walked out behind the warehouse where they were working, and there was new... Uh, uh, asphalt that had been laid. There's a big, long, big, huge uh, parking lot full of asphalt. And they looked out, and, and growing up in the, in the middle of the asphalt was a, was a stubborn little plant that had grown right up. And they took that as a sign from the Lord that it, no matter how dark the world gets, even one Christian child's life can, can kind of make its way up through that darkness. And so they wrote a little song you may have heard it's called, Because He Lives. You remember that second verse, how sweet to hold a newborn baby, feel the warmth and joy he gives, but greater still the calm assurance this child can face on certain days, because he lives. And if you're normal and you might have a really kind of heavy heart right now, to look around the world and to see the bad things that are happening in the world, and even kind of get into our own hearts, into our own church, into our own family. It's not just people out there, it's all of us, our influence by the sin around us. The brokenness touches all of us, goes to the core of all of us. And it would be easy for us to get cynical and negative and pessimistic and faithless and hopeless about 
the generation to come and, and kind of even curse them and, and say bad things to them and about them. My appeal is this. We should not be that kind of people. We should be the kind of people that no matter what negative thing happens to us, no matter what disappointment that comes, no matter what you know, penalty that you know, sin requires us to pay, we should still believe that God works through new human beings being born in the world. Consider the generational promises of the Bible. So consider this to keep from being cynical and negative. Consider Psalm 127. You can also read forward to Psalm 128. Psalm 128. When, when, we're, when Lois was pregnant with our son Daniel, I think he's our fifth. Is that right? Kyle, Holly, Chuck, Heidi, Hannah, Dan. Sixth. He's our sixth child. Born on November 8th, 1991. At home. We were so crazy. And uh, when he was born, um, I remember that he immediately had a, a little medical complication, so he went into a hospital. And then after that, Lois had a medical complication, she went into a hospital. So try to avoid the hospital, we went to two hospitals. But nonetheless, Danny, was, Danny is a strapping, strong uh, sheriff's deputy in New Mexico, in Lee County, New Mexico today. And he's a believer, he's just the Lord's Savior, and he's raising a, you know, a Christian family. I remember, though, when he was sick, and then when Lois was sick, I was kind of discouraged. And I thought, God, you know, we don't have the money for this. How am I ever going to do this? And Lois was in the hospital. And I was standing there next to her in the hospital just thinking, this, is, this isn't the way it's supposed to work out. And uh, I thought, I wonder if they have one of those New Testaments around here anywhere, and those Bibles. And I, I opened the drawer, and there was a green Gideon New Testament. And I opened it up, but Lois was laying there sick, and she, she got well, and Danny got well. But I read this, Psalm 128. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, and you will be blessed, and it will be well with you. And your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life, and may you see your children's children, and peace be upon Israel. And when I read that that day, it was very precious to me. And I would just say, the world is going to tell you other things. And other people are going to tell you other things. And misinformed Christians are going to tell you other things. And pastors aren't always right. Sometimes they're going to tell you other things. But what God says is children are a blessing from the Lord. If you can have children right now, I would do that. I would do that. Amen, Ken. All right. Now, it's like, even if I'm the only one who thinks that, children are a blessing from the Lord, and we live in a culture that doesn't believe that. But God does believe that, and God's Word does say that. And so I would open my heart to children. I would welcome children. Consider the generational promises of the Bible. I love this. In Ephesians chapter 3, you know, we, we refer to it often. There is a, there's a beautiful prayer there in Ephesians chapter 3. just a gorgeous lyrical prayer. And, and, it, and it comes to the end and has this benediction. Now unto him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Did you ever notice those words? Through all, in other words, the, the actual success of the church requires people having babies, right? And making generations. 
to make disciples. Like we, we say around here, um, we, we, uh, uh, we say we want to be disciples, we want to make disciples, we want to follow Jesus, we want to help others follow Jesus because we love Jesus and we want other people to experience the love of Jesus. And that's especially true when you think about it. What's the greatest thing you can do for somebody? You bring a child into the world, you follow Jesus, you help them follow Jesus. And then when you're gone, they're still following Jesus and they're having others who are following Jesus. That's how it works. I mean, that's just straight up Logic. It doesn't work any other way. But all throughout the Bible, you have these wonderful, um, you, these wonderful promises of generational faithfulness. And if you're like me, that's just so cool when you first see it. And then later on, when you realize what it's going to cost and how hard it's going to be and what's going to be involved, it can be really easy to feel cynical and go, God, I didn't think this was going to happen. I didn't think that's what they were going to say. I didn't think that's where they were going to go. I didn't know this is what it was going to cost. And we go back to the Bible and say, yeah, God, you said that having children would be a heritage and a reward and a resource and a, play, and a cause of rejoicing. And even if at this moment right now, if, 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 if a child or a grandchild of mine is not walking with the Lord and didn't want to walk with the Lord, then what I would do is I would, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but I continue to pray for them. I continue to model Christ to them. I continue to love them, but I would find somebody else who did want to walk with the Lord right now, and I would help them, and they would come back later on when they wanted to walk with the Lord, but I wouldn't give up on the next generation. And this church has not done that, hasn't given up on the next generation, and I'm just saying we never should. We should keep sending those boxes to little kids around the world. We should keep supporting Camp Sela, and, and we should keep uh, sending our kids there to work, and we should keep our hearts uh, alive with the vision of, of a youth haven and the kids that could go there and they could hear about the Lord. We should keep giving and keep investing and keep working and keep believing that God says there's going to be uh, grace in every generation that the church, glory to God through Christ Jesus in all the generations. The early church was formed in a most pagan and in a most hostile culture. And now that we're coming to a time when our culture is becoming more and more pagan, we shouldn't be intimidated because the church was founded in a culture just like that. Paul had this apostolic optimism, if you will. He said in Ephesians 2.7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness in Christ Jesus in the coming ages, which we're not going to be here for. Right? We're not physically on earth for that till we come back. Peter said it too. To him be dominion forever and forever. But grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter said it's in the second epistle of Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. And so did Jude. And Jude writes this epistle about apostasy, right? So we lived in a time of people walking away from the Lord. He lived in a time of apostasy. And yet he said uh, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion both now before, and, and, and forever and ever. Psalm 90 and verse 1 says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. You've been our refuge in every generation. Psalm 119 verse 90 says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. So no Christian could ever say, this generation is so bad. They got their heads buried on their cell phones. They're losers, you know. They're not like us. They're not wonderful like us. They're like the greatest generation of the people that went before or back in the whatever, back in the day. That's something that Christian people, it's wrong thinking, that defeatist narrative you do not get from the Bible. And you should not say that. It's not true. 
everybody who walks with the Lord walks with the Lord for the same reason. And every generation is going to have faithless people who walk away from the Lord. And every generation is going to have faithful people who walk with the Lord. And we have the word of God on it. Jesus Christ himself. He says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this. As Simon answers the question, right, about who Jesus is. But my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And I tell you, you're Peter. On this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That the, the religious pessimism is the worst kind of pessimism, and we shouldn't let it into our hearts. Helen Keller wrote, No pessimist ever discovered the secrets of the stars. No pessimist ever sailed to an uncharted land. No pessimist ever, ever opened a new heaven in the human spirit. And this is true with our young people. We, of all people, should be most optimistic about the possibilities that, of them doing things that we never got to do for the Lord. I was a pastor at Church of the Country one time, and they were all talking about the past, which is really kind of cool. Every, you know, church has a heritage, and you should talk about the heritage of the church, and you should build on the heritage of the church. But, you know, sometimes what happens is you stop having a vision for the future, and you start only looking back. And then that's not so good. You're kind of then running a religious museum at that point. I took this little church of the country, and they always said, you know, when, when Pastor Susan Galker was here, she was an area minister, and she came by this church, and she had a prayer meeting once that had 100 people in it. Susan Gawker had a prayer meeting with 100 people in it. I'm like, that's amazing. That's amazing. Prayer meeting, because the prayer meetings I was running were like 15 people on a good night, maybe 17, um, 100 people. And they would just say, when Susan Gawker was here, we had a prayer meeting with 100 people. And one time I said, well, you know, somebody tell me about that. You know, I eventually met the lady. She's a precious uh, lady. I, I, I said, hey, um, kind of tell me about that. Some of the people were like, I never met her. I, I asked somebody else, well, have you met No, I haven't met her. So a couple of the really old people had met her. None of the young people in the church had ever met her. None of the young people in the church had seen this prayer meeting with 100 people in it. I got to thinking, man, we, we ought to probably do something now instead of just always talking about when Reverend Susan Gawker was here and there was 100 people in the prayer meeting, you know. And so I thought, man, what should we do? And we decided that we would, get to, we would plan a vacation Bible school. So we got together, and never forget, we got together the fellowship hall of the church, and people were around the table, and it was a really precious, dear, you know, farm wives, ladies of the church, good, good people. I love the Lord. And I said, well, what about having a vacation Bible school? And they said, well, you know, we used to have them, and they were really good. And then they literally went around the table, every single person saying, why vacation Bible school won't work like it used to. They didn't realize they were doing it, but literally every person did that. And so one person said, you know, families aren't as big as they used to be. Back in the day, people had big families, and we had lots of kids in vacation Bible school, but now families are smaller. Like, hmm. I go, okay. Next lady says, you know, women are working outside the home now. Back in the day, women didn't work outside the home all the time. They were home, and they would come to the Bible school, you know? They, yeah, yeah. Next person, I remember the next person says, people aren't committed like they used to be. I mean, back in the day, people were committed. They would commit to something, they would do it. But these people, these young people anymore, these young people, they're not committed to anything. They're not devoted to anything. That's what, you know, you just hear that kind of stuff. It's not really Christian talk at all. It's really not Christian. Anyway, she's a nice lady, she meant well. And I, as, as they went around the table, I thought, this is really bad. And I didn't know what to do. I'm just a young guy, I'm like, oh... I remember when I was a kid, we had a vacation Bible school, and it went really well, and I remember they gave away bikes. I thought, well, we can try that, you know? And so, um, and so it comes back around to me, and I say, um, 
well, I said, if I could, if I could show you how you could have 100 kids in Bible school. When we took that church, there were like 69 people in it. Um, it grew. But anyway, I said, if I could show you you could have 100 kids in Bible school, would you, would you take my suggestions? And they go, I don't know. I go, I'm not going to tell you my secrets unless you promise to do them. And they're like, okay, what, what would we do? And I said, well, I went to a Bible school one time, and they got a hot air balloon, and they gave a hot air balloon. They let the kids all inflate this hot air balloon, and then gave them, a, you know, the kid that brought the most kids got a ride in the hot air balloon. It was cheesy. It was cheap. I admit it. But, you know, I was trying to get us, you know, something good going on. After a while, they kind of caught on. They go, you know what we could do? We got, I know a guy who owns a Ford Waco biplane, and we could give a kid a ride in an airplane that brought the most kids. And somebody said, I'll tell you what, you know, if you think that, that'll work, I'll donate a new bike for the, and I, some guy said, I'll donate a new bike for a little boy. And a lady said, I'll donate a new bike for a little girl. We bought a group of kids. It was kind of humorous because the kids really came. It was a big Bible school. It, we bought them, you know, I mean, we, we bought and paid for these kids. It was really kind of cute because the girl that won the bike, I heard her talking with her friends, and she's going, okay, the kids are like, when are we going to get our ice cream? The kids that she brought, right? When are we going to get our ice cream? She goes, well, wait a minute, I got to get my bike. In other words, <laughs> we bribed her to come, and she bribed all her friends to come, but doggone it, we had like 200 kids in a Bible school. Was that right or wrong? I don't know. I just know we had 200 kids in Bible school, heard about Jesus, it seemed like a good thing, you know? And then what happened was people said, well, maybe we can do it. Then we did a friend day at that church. Church that was 69 when we came had 321 people on friend day. You know, it was just like once the optimism started going, once people started believing, you know, there's things that we could do. Well, you know, God is willing to honor that kind of chutzpah, that kind of faith. When people say, wait a minute, you know, sure. You know, what, what I think is interesting, can I just rant on this just for a minute? Would it be okay? All right. So I look on my phone a lot, you know, and I'm reading my phone, and every once in a while, I see on my phone why it's bad to look on a phone. Only a few of you get that. This is the weirdest thing ever. I'm like, if you want to write an article about how bad it is to be on a phone, don't put it on my phone. Run it on a mimeograph machine and, and go door to door with it. Don't put it on my phone, right? If you want to write a big article about how the world's going to hell because they have a cell phone, don't put it on the internet, right? Because you're not being very consistent. I guess kind of humorous. I have a writer I like a lot. I'm ranting right now. His name is Wendell Berry. He says, I've never had a computer. Of course he doesn't have a computer. He's a wealthy guy that other people write his stuff, and then they put it on the computer, and then we all read it on the computer. So it's, just, it's just kind of a lame thing. Christian people shouldn't really be all noodling around about stuff like that. What they should have is an apostolic optimism about the generation to come, phone or no phone, internet or no internet. Maybe we could just use the internet for God, or we could use, use our phones for God, or use our social media for God. And if you don't want to be on the phone, this is not a message about being on the phone. You get that, right? This is a message about believing that a generation will come and they might have weird hair and they might have tattoos and they might listen to music that we don't think is musical and they're the ones that are going to carry the gospel to the world when we're dead. And so we ought to never lose our heart. So we keep believing and we're not discouraged and we, we don't quit working. I went back to the Moody Bible Institute where I was a student, and I went back to do grad work, and they put me in the rooms where I'd been, same, same rooms, you know, not the exact same room, but the same dorm, Culbertson Hall. And, and maybe you remember me saying this. I remember kind of thinking, you know, when we were here, 
we really knew God. We really loved God. We really prayed. We really did evangelism. We really prayed for missions. We really cared about, but these kids anymore, you know, I'm really not sure. You know, they're young, and they're raised in a really weird time, and so, you know, I'm really not sure about them. And I would go in the room, and their stuff was still there. You know, you're staying in the room in between sessions, right? And they're letting you stay in the room. And so their books are there, and their Bible memory cards are there, and their girlfriend's picture is there, and their mom's picture, and their stuff. And I, as I sat there, as I looked in that room, I realized they're studying the same Bible that I was studying. And they're memorizing the same scriptures that I was memorizing. And they have actually probably some better textbooks than I had when I was there. And I know this is kind of crude, but when I went into the men's room and I closed the stall door, there were scriptures on moral purity that the boys were memorizing the scriptures in the bathroom so that they would have a pure heart and they would walk with God. I thought, that kind of reminds me of me when I was a kid. God is still doing things with young people today, and we must never let ourselves become cynical. D.A. Carson is uh, as an educator, and he wrote, at the same time, God, he's saying, times are bad. He wrote this book, The Gagging of God, and he recognized how difficult times are. But he said, at the same time, God is raising up a brand new generation of pastors and evangelists and church planters, and they have a give-me-this-mountain Caleb-like spirit, and they want mentors who are serious about the gospel and about faithfully preaching the Bible. And this is the most encouraging and the most promising generation of seminary students that I have ever known. That's kind of interesting. How can I possibly be discouraged when I work with them? I cannot pretend to know whether God will impose judgment on us or bring around revival, but I do know that we should invest in this next generation. So here's my direct appeal to you. Don't be discouraged about the future. There are many, many reasons, you know, to be sober and to be prayerful, to be serious, but don't be discouraged. Stay in relationship with young people. Young people, stay in relationship with older people. Keep praying for your kids. Whether your kids are walking with the Lord or not, pray for them. And by the way, just quickly, if your kids aren't walking with the Lord, keep praying for them, right? Keep being a model to them. Keep loving them. Careful about what you say. Only say what the Spirit tells you to say when the Spirit tells you to say it. But keep loving them and keep praying for them and keep modeling Christ for them and keep building a beautiful place for them to return to when they return to God to show them, you know, what it's like. And if you have sinned against them in any way, ask the Spirit to reveal that to you and go to them and make that part right. And then find somebody else who wants to hear about the Lord right now. And don't be discouraged and don't quit. But keep giving. Keep giving to these things that we're talking about and other things the Lord puts on your mind. And keep loving and keep listening, keep modeling. You know, I, I got a little list of things that, ha that started in Jackson. And I'm going to tell you this, and th then I'll be done. Jackson's a really interesting place. First state prison in Michigan was started in, in Jackson. It's the birthplace of the Republican Party. You can boo or you can cheer or whatever you want there. Um, the Jackson Cracker was found here. We know it as the Ritz Cracker started in Jackson, right? Uh, the Coney Island thing started in Jackson. Um, the Jackson used to be called... Jacksonboro. Did you know that? Jacksonopolis. You know more about this than I do. But, but, it's, but, but a lot of good things started in Jackson. Um, the Buick and a bunch of cars started in Jackson. Isn't that interesting? There were corset factories. Moving on. Um, the Buick. And then there were uh, the first regional integrated electric grid and the coat hanger. And my son Chuck was born in Jackson. So a lot of good things came from Jackson. Isn't that kind of interesting? And there's something else that I discovered once that has its roots in Jackson. And can I tell you about it? I, I remember it was in 1999, it was June, uh, July 6th of 1999. I got in my little Ford Explorer, and I packed all my stuff up, and I drove up to a camp I'd never heard of before. And when I got there, they welcomed me in. I was like, wow, this is a neat summer camp. I'd never seen it. I'd never heard of it before. 
And they said, well, here's your place where you stay. And I went in to stay there, and there was this green book that told the story of the camp. And when I started reading that green book, I felt the Spirit of God come on me. The, the founder of the camp was a guy that went to Moody. I thought, oh, that's neat. I went to Moody. And the founder of the camp was a guy that was a youth pastor at Loomis Park Baptist Church. I'm like, oh my goodness. I used to be a youth pastor at Loomis Park Baptist Church. Back before the church burned down in Loomis Park years ago, time of the war, this man, this Moody grad, was a youth pastor at Loomis Park Baptist Church. And it was there that God put on his heart a desire to build a camp for the glory of God. Uncle Johnny Johnson Holman, founder of Camp Barakel, was got his start in ministry here in Jackson. But here's the interesting thing I noticed about him. I, I got to minister, I've been up ministering up there for like 22 years, and, and, and I noticed something. When I, before he went to be with the Lord, there's something I noticed about him. He had shepherded children through really tumultuous times, starting with World War II, and then the turbulent, you know, 60s, and all the craziness of that, and all that families went through, and all that churches went through. And then even into modern times when there's just an explosion of all kinds of scary things that kids are involved in. And yet he maintained this optimism, this joy. He would, he would go around the camp and he'd ruffle up the kid's hair and say, you know, here, we want a nice place for this little peanut. He would call the campers little peanuts. And he, he built these chapels, you know, that, that, that had, that the, they, would, they, would go, they would go up like this. So he would say, so every little peanut can have a front row seat. Here, here's what I noticed about him, and, and the spirit is still alive in that camp and, and many other Christian ministries, people that really make a difference in the world that's very dark and very negative are not the people who are quick to pull the shades, are not the people that are quick to pronounce judgment, they're not the people that are quick to render doom, they're not the ones that are really good at saying how really bad kids are. They're the, they're the people who, who believe that God will still be at work when we are, are with him. And I hope and I pray with all my heart that Bethel Church will be just full of people just like that until Jesus comes back. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for precious little ones that we, whose parents wanted to dedicate them to the Lord today. And I pray for them again that those very children would go on and be mighty in the Spirit powerful in ministry and in love and, and uh, they, that they would have fruitful lives following you. And I pray that you would help us here at Bethel to continue the heritage of pouring our hearts into little ones. We thank you, Lord, that like over 100 people every Wednesday night come here for a Awana program and kids are still memorizing Bible verses, sometimes almost 100 kids, and they're still memorizing the Bible and they're still being loved on and taught. I pray for the young people that are, that are in harm's way, that are in difficulty, that are, that are in temptation, that are struggling, that it is a, is a dark world today, and, and much is pulling on them. I pray that you and the power of the Holy Spirit would strengthen with might by your spirit and the inner person and help them not to drift away from you, but to walk, but to run to you and not away from you. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would, would give us in the Bethel Church a, a strong ministry to families and to children. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for coming today. You are dismissed.